Mark, the Gospel according to Mark. Um, J. Vernon McGee wrote this about the Gospel writer Mark. He said, Mark was written by a busy man for a busy people about a busy man. Remember, Jesus is what? On the move. So that, that's so fitting because Mark's just this continuing to just go from story to story to story to story. There seems to be no pause. Sometimes we get the pause, you know, Jesus going alone and praying, um, but then he's right back, you know, in the story and just moving and moving. So that's so fitting that J. Vernon McGee wrote that in his commentary. As we continue in this gospel, though, according to Mark, we've been learning a lot. Jesus is on the move. And remember the question that a writer posed, and I want to bring to you again, what was the question that we need to answer for ourselves? Who is Jesus? That's the question everybody has to answer, I believe, in life. Each individual has to answer that question for themselves. Who is this man, Jesus? I can't answer it for you. I can, but it's not going to do any good if you don't believe it, who Jesus is. So in this season of Advent expectation, I like to say, of Jesus coming into the world as an infant, we look ahead to that, and He comes into the world, and what do we know about this? He dwelt among us. God came down and dwelt among us, Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. So He's making His home here on earth for a little bit. And remember, what's the beginning of Mark? I love the beginning of Mark. I was going to bring beginning of books that were on my shelf, but I'm not going to do that because I, would, I, I was going to say, can you guess this book by the introduction sentence? Some of you may have done that well, but Mark, if I said to people on the street, which, who starts their writing like this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? How many responses would I get the right response? But the gospel... That's what we're going to write. That's what Mark's writing about, about Jesus. And J. Vernon McGee, remember, Mark was written by a busy man for a busy people about a busy man, and that busy man is Jesus, always doing something. Four people, and he's asking his father for strength. He's always praying to his father. And we're learning about this Jesus, the Messiah. And he came. He lived a life. We don't know much about his early life, but we get three years of his ministry on earth, from 30 years old to about 33. He's healing people. He's teaching people. He's trying to get people to understand who he is and what God is all about and the future is all about. And he taught with one with authority. Remember that from chapter 1 or 2. I forget which one it's in, but he taught with authority and people recognize that. And because of this, you see the title there, but if you want to write a full, Jesus can be trusted, that's the title, but because of who Jesus is, Jesus can be trusted. And we're going to learn about that today. So if you have your Bibles, if you're still there, if you followed along, Chapter 8, 1 through 13, that's what we're going to look at. So chapter 8 starts off, During those days, another large crowd gathered. So what are these days? Go back to last week. 
And I want you to get this setting, okay? The question I want us to answer, and we're going to answer it here, where the feeding took place. He's feeding 4,000 people, but where does it take place? You have to go back to what during those days are. So if you go back to chapter 7, verse 31, just a few verses before this, what does it say? Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. Everybody say Decapolis. Have you heard that one before in one of our previous sermons? Not just from last week, but from a previous story where he healed the person in the cave and then he went to the Decapolis. That's where he was preaching. The person, the demon-possessed man that was healed from the caves and he went and proclaimed it in the Decapolis, what Jesus did. And they came out and said, Hey, who are you, Jesus? The Decapolis is a region of the Gentiles. Get that in your mind. He's in the region of the Gentiles, or mostly Gentiles, not Jewish people. So some writers said that I've researched and studied this week, some writers said, oh, this is just a retelling of the 5,000 that were fed. But then if you go in the details, they're totally different. And I want to point some of those out before we go through this passage to get you an idea of what the difference is and how it makes, or the importance of it. Because where's the feeding? First of all, it's in Decapolis, a mostly Gentile region. So it's not a retelling of the Jewish feast in Galilee. The 5,000 were fed in the region of Galilee, which is a mostly Jewish territory. Okay? So the writers that say, this is just a retelling of the same story. Scratch those writers, say, no, that's not right. And look at this, more details before we run through it and what I want we, us to learn from Jesus because He does some amazing things that we can take and live out ourselves, I think. So look at this detail, okay? Go down to verse... I'm trying to get the right verse here. Verse 8, what does it say? The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven... What? basketfuls okay in the story of the 5,000 remember there was how many basketfuls left over if you remember 12 it's kind of like this a wicker basket Maybe a little bigger than this, but this is what Jewish people carried around they had their food and essentials so they wouldn't eat anything defiled They carried their own food around. That's what the Greek word for basket in the 5,000 was. Okay? Think of that. Kind of like this size. Okay? This basket full is a hamper, a basket, a big, large basket. Same word used. If you know the story in Acts, Paul gets let down from the city in the basket. That's what it is. Two different Greek words. One Greek basket is used only for the Jewish people. That's what they carried around. Is that interesting? And the Greek word for basket in this story is this type of basket. That's amazing to me. 
how Mark used these two different words to describe, which some writers say, the same story. I, if, I, if I didn't become a minister in preaching, I would have never studied these things. And that's why I love it, because if we search scriptures and study together, and we get all these small details, we're saying, this is amazing. This is so, oh, I'm just so amazed by God's word and just all that is in it. And I, that's why I bring it to you every Sunday. And that's why I like to meet every Wednesday in the foyer there. That's why I like to meet Thursday mornings in my office. Or if I come to your house, or you come to my house. Or if we're walking on the way, we're talking about Scripture and all these little details. Don't miss the details of the story. I'm sure we can go to Mike and Kathy and say, give us some details of your marriage and tell us those little stories because we want to learn from you. That's what the Gospel according to Mark is doing giving us these small details, saying Jesus is who He said He was. He did a lot of good things for people. And now we're going to look at it. So I hope that it helps to set the setting of this story because it's amazing to me. And one other thing that caught my eye too, speaking of Gentile and Jewish, in the 5,000 it said, 5,000 men were present besides women and children. In the Greek, it used the word man or men. In this story, it does not use men. It just says 4,000 people. It doesn't use men. And I'm not a scholar of Jewish history or anything or writing, but I think Jewish culture, they counted men first. And this just says 4,000 people were present in the Greek language. Just another fascinating thing. So here we go. Are you ready to learn from Jesus today? Not from me, from Jesus. Are you ready? Here we go. Go to chapter 8 again. You're there. Verse 2. So Jesus, during those days, this large crowd gathered around Jesus. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples to Him and said this. This is the time that Jesus actually said this. Mark makes it clear. Jesus called His disciples to Him and said, if you remember, in previous healings or feedings, Jesus had compassion on the person or the feeding of the 5,000. He had compassion on them. It doesn't say Jesus actually said this. Here, Jesus actually said it. And the disciples hear it. I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. That is a long time without probably going with food. Maybe little food. Their food ran out. For three days they've been with Jesus. It doesn't say what they were doing. One writer said, he was probably teaching them a lot, and, he's, and the writer was like, I want that manuscript that what Jesus was teaching. For three days, you, remember, you know how long that manuscript would be? But Jesus says, I have compassion on these people. If you remember, the word is splachnitzomai. That's just a cool word to say, isn't it? Splachnitzomai. This is to be moved from the bowels. Your insides. The bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. So Jesus, from the seat of this love and pity He has for these people, He says, 
They've been with me three days. They have nothing to eat. I have so much compassion on them. I have to do something. And then verse 3, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. So Jesus understands and tells his disciples that if I send them away to their homes or wherever they're staying for this night or day, they're not even going to make it to where they're going. They're going to faint. They're going to collapse because they have no food. They can't make it there. And a verse from Isaiah came to my mind. If you want to turn there, you can go to Isaiah chapter 40. So Jesus says, disciples, I can't send them away because they're going to not make it. They're going to collapse. Have you ever collapsed because you're so tired or weary? Have you? There's been some sporting events where I just wanted to like lay on the ground. That's all I can think of. But Jesus says, I can't send them away. And this verse came to my mind in Isaiah chapter 40 at the very end. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse. I'll start in verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. And he has compassion on these people and he says, I can't send them away because they're going to collapse. They're going to faint. They're weary. And what does Isaiah tell us about who God is? He gives strength to the weary. He gives strength to the weary. Jesus says, if I send them away, they're going to collapse because they're weary. And then he tells his disciples back in, chat, in Mark, let's continue the story. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? What a, I want to say stupid question. Because we're reading it now, but they're in the moment and they don't even remember what Jesus has done in the past. Where are we going to get all this food in this remote place, Jesus? Jesus, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. So obviously they had a little food. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves, he gave thanks. He broke them, gave them to his disciples to distribute. And then there was a few small fish as well. He gave thanks and they distributed it as well. So I looked up what we can learn from Jesus. If you're writing notes, number one, have compassion for people. Have compassion for people. Show compassion. That's number one. Show compassion for people. David Garland writes this in his commentary, if I can find it. Maybe not. 
Oh, here it is. David Garland says, The disciples do not yet realize that even with their scanty supplies, the seven loaves and few fish, they have in Jesus enough to feed the entire world. What did the disciples do after Jesus ascended to heaven? What did they do? They proclaimed Jesus to the world. They didn't realize it yet, but Jesus is enough to feed the entire world. They didn't realize that yet. And when Jesus takes the bread and the fish, what does he do? He gives thanks to God and says, Give, he gave thanks and then he gave it to his disciples and they fed everybody, right? So I had to look up giving thanks because we just come out of Thanksgiving, right? Did we not? We come out of Thanksgiving. Now we're looking forward to Jesus coming into the world as an infant, the Savior of the world. And now we see here in this text, he's giving thanks and spreading food to these people and they're being fed. Giving thanks, there's two different words used. Don't you love the English language that they use the same word and it's not the same word? Do you love it? Please say no. Because sometimes I'm reading English, I'm like, that's not what it, no, give me another word. Okay? The Greek word for the first thanks, okay, is Eucharist. Everybody say that. That's the English word, okay? I gave you the English pronunciation of it, okay? Eucharist. That comes from the Greek, which means gratitude. Another definition in the Merriam-Webster of Eucharist is spiritual communion with God. Isn't that why we come celebrate Jesus and remember Jesus dying for us? That's the Lord's Supper, right? The Eucharist. But then the next word, with the fish, he says in the NIV, gave thanks for them and he told his disciples, distribute them. That word is eulogy. Everybody say that, the English word. Eulogy. Where do, you hear eul- where do you hear eulogies? At what? Funerals. Is this a funeral? He's giving a eulogy. It just means high praise. And I forgot I put the, the Greek words on the board there. Can anybody pronounce them? That's eucharistio and that's eulogio, Okay. I forgot I put that and then I just noticed on a glance in my eye. But gratitude and praise. Two separate words. You have Eucharist and eulogy. That amazes me too. So Jesus is giving thanks. He has gratitude for this bread and he says, he gave thanks and then gave it to the disciples they spread. Then he says, I praise you for this, these fish. And he distributes it to disciples and they feed everybody and have some left over. Could you fill this with seven? Can you fill seven of these? How many people are going to be fed with just the leftovers? And then let's keep going. So have compassion for people, okay? Give thanks for what God has done for us. Give praise to God. High praise. Three things we can learn from Jesus here. And number four, let's take a look at, let's keep going in the story here. 
The people ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. That's a lot of food left over. 4,000 were present. After He had sent them away. So Jesus, after they were satisfied, He sends them away. He says, now you can go. You're not going to collapse on the way. That's what He's thinking probably. They're not going to collapse, so now they can go. And verse 10, He got into the boat with His disciples and were, went to the region of Dalmanutha. And I love, Andrea, when you said, that's a one, whatever you said, that's a wonderful word or a hard word or whatever. And I, was, and I thought in my head, it's the only time it's mentioned in the Bible, I think. Dalmanutha. It's just a region across the sea. So they're leaving Gentile territory and going across the sea. And now they arrive somehow in verse 11. So they get to Dalmanutha and the region there. And verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. What is up with these Pharisees? Are they always showing up in the story of Mark? According to Mark, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're always showing up. And they're questioning Jesus. They're bringing something to them. They're, they want to, and then let's keep reading because another word jumps out too, to test Him. They want to test Him. They want to, you know, this word in the Greek language is, it kind of scares me because it's perazo. I think I said it wrong, but that's okay. Parazo is the Greek word for testing. And look at the definition of this. To try, make trial of, test. In this context with these Pharisees, it's in a bad sense. To test one maliciously. And the Merriam-Webster, I had to look up maliciously, with intent to do harm. They want to test Jesus to harm Him. That's like, these Pharisees, they are supposed to know the law, they're supposed to be religious, and they want to test Jesus to harm Him. And they ask Him for a sign from heaven. A question for you, what has Jesus been doing this whole time? Signs, right? (laughs) Miracle after miracle, healing after healing. Authority teaching after teaching. He's done all these signs already. And then verse 12. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. He sighed deeply. Why did Jesus sigh deeply? That's a question to kind of ponder for a a couple seconds here. Why did Jesus sigh deeply? Just think about that for a minute. And Paul McReynolds in his commentary writes this. An absolute sign would mean walking by sight and not by trust. These Pharisees come to Jesus, question Jesus, test Him to harm Him, and they say, give us a sign from heaven. And Jesus kind of just says, 
that's what I think, like that frustrated, like, like, what is this? And he says, nothing's going to be given. No sign. McReynolds again, an absolute sign would mean walking by sight, not by trust. They wanted Jesus to, to prove that he was God, basically. They're saying, give us a sign that only God can do, and then maybe we'll believe. That's what I kind of put in there. But Jesus says, I'm not going to give it to you. And then he leaves. Got back in a boat and crossed to the other side. At my desk, that's why I came up with the title, Jesus Can Be Trusted. What do we have today? Do we ask for signs? Have we sawn something like Jesus? Have we seen Jesus in the flesh doing all these miracles? Have we seen Jesus in the flesh, us personally? No. But Jesus can still be trusted. Correct? Can Jesus still be trusted? And that's what I think Paul McReynolds was trying to point out. An absolute sign would mean walking by sight and not by trust. If I never see a sign, a miraculous sign from Jesus Himself, I'm still going to trust that what I read about Jesus, what has been said about Jesus in His life, I can still trust who Jesus is. I don't need this miraculous sign. And Jesus, I, ho- I wish He said it just flat out, I'm God to these Pharisees. But He didn't. He said, I'm not going to give a sign and left them. Can you go to Hebrews? I know we heard Tony talk about Hebrews. Can you go to Hebrews chapter 11? We're going to go to a couple places here before we finish. So Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, verses 1 and 6. So Hebrews chapter 11, we know it as the faith chapter and all these people living by faith and doing things by faith in God. But verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. If you take verse 6 and put in kind of the definition in verse 1, and without faith or the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, it is impossible to please God. Paul McReynolds again. An absolute sign would mean walking by what we see and not by trust or faith. We can't please God if we do not have faith. Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Here's the Apostle Paul writing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Here's just a side question, but do you get excited when you read the Bible? Do you? 
Because I do. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we live by what? Faith, not by sight. We live by faith, not by sight. Romans 10, Romans 10, verse 17. Here's Paul again, the Apostle Paul. Romans 10, verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of the gospel. Or sorry, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Comes by hearing the message about Christ. That's where faith comes from. If we hear the message of Christ, we can trust Jesus for who he is. And what people have wrote about him. Mark is writing to us about Jesus the Messiah. He can be trusted and the Pharisees want to harm him and say, give us a sign, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to get in the boat and go to the other side. I'm not going to give you a sign. As an invitation today, Jesus can be trusted and the Merriam-Webster Dictionary helps a lot. I think whoever, is it Miriam? That's his last name in Webster, maybe. <laughs> but they wrote the definitions of words. Jesus can be trusted. And in the Merriam-Webster.com, the thesaurus section, it says this, and it's It's wonderful. Trusted, as in handed, to put something into the possession or safekeeping of another. We're putting our life in safekeeping with Jesus. Jesus, here's my life and I'm giving it to you. Trusted, as in believed, to regard as right or true. Jesus, I'm believing you are true. Capital T, right? You are the truth. Jesus can be trusted because we can give our life to Jesus and say, You're, my life is yours, God. I can't do anything on my own. I need you. And then we believe that Jesus is true. And then you go to Philippians. This is where I'll end. Philippians chapter 2. In this, especially during this season. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to these words. Philippians chapter 2, it says this, and then I'm going to go to chapter 4. Philippians 2, starting in verse 6, or 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, God in the flesh. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross for us. Therefore God exalted him in the highest places and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to see that day when everybody's on their knees saying, Jesus, You are God. You're the Savior of the world. And then chapter 4, verse 10 through 13 in Philippians. And if you notice your bulletins, that's on the cover. If you notice the bulletins, chapter Philippians 4.13, and I'll get there. But this is what Paul writes, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him, Jesus, who gives me strength. Jesus had compassion on the 4,000. If He sent them away, they're going to fall down. They're going to collapse on the way. Jesus is saying, I am enough for people. I can do something. And Paul understood that. I can have nothing, or I can have everything. I can be in want, need, whatever the situation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, gives me strength. Did Jesus give the 4,000 people strength? You betcha. They went home hungry, or fed, satisfied. They're not going to collapse on the way. Isn't that life? We get so down and weary, but who gives us strength? Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus can be trusted. That's what I think Paul's writing about. Whatever I find myself in, if I have Jesus, I have enough. Repent and believe the good news. Confess Jesus as Messiah. He's the only one that can save. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit is the gift that you're given I read in a devotional this morning. It was so fitting because we all need to place our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And in the devotional I read this morning before people were coming into this church building, the writer said this, Jesus doesn't just give you what you need. Jesus is what you need. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. The Gospel according to Mark is so powerful. Jesus had compassion on people. Help us to have compassion on people. If we see a need, help us to fill it. I pray that we would give thanks and praise for the things that You are doing in this church, in our individual lives, in the community around us, in the world at large. Help us to praise You and give thanks to where You're working. And thank You that Jesus is enough. Jesus is what we need the most. Especially in this world today. Help us to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the people around us. And thank You for the Gospel according to Mark and Your Word as a whole. Teaching us who You are. Help us to place our hope and trust in You. 
In Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God's holy name, amen.